Hello, my name's Joseph Angora. Thanks for taking the time out to check out my podcast, Unannounced. Unannounced aims to break the stigma surrounding mental health while reminding listeners that it's okay not to be okay. If you worry about your own or someone else's mental health, don't remain unannounced. Start the conversation and access support. Visit www.stagechelly.com.au slash get help for a list of services. On this week's episode, I had the great pleasure of sitting down and speaking to Speak Up Stay Chatty founder and all-around great bloke, Mitch McPherson. Mitch and I spoke about his childhood, education, the battle of dealing with his brother's unfortunate passing, and how a small idea of creating a sticker that would honour his brother's memory would lead to him creating a non-for-profit organisation, which would not only continue to honour his brother's memory, but spread the valuable message to speak up and stay chatty. As Mitch touches on throughout our chat, speak up, stay chatty would go on to not only have a a massive impact on his life, but also those around him. I hope you enjoy hearing Mitch's amazing story as much as I did. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mitch. It's great to have you on. Um, I usually just like to start by sort of getting the guests to give us a bit of a background on themselves, so their childhood, school and sport. And yeah, we usually just go from there. Thanks heaps for having me. Uh, it's good to finally chat to you. You and I have sort of uh, mucked around a little bit with dates over the last while, but it's nice to finally be joining you. So I'm, uh, I'm 33 years of age now and uh, happily married to my wife's at heart and uh, we've got little Maya who's uh, eight, nearly nine months. Um, so life is, uh, I feel really blessed every day to, to have a loving family. Growing up, uh, I went to Corpus Christi Primary School here in, uh, in Hobart, Tasmania and then uh, I went off to St Virgil's College uh, out of Austin's Ferry which um, for those that don't know, it was an all-boys school and I pretty much went to uh, St Virgil's College uh, because they were pretty good at sport. Um, so I begged my parents to let me go there because they loved, uh, you know, St. Virgil's were pretty good at footy and cricket and I was pretty big on my sport back then. So um, they let me go there. I sort of fluffed around at school a bit. I wouldn't say that I uh, achieved, you know, um, major results at school. I sort of went there and didn't realise how important it was to go to school uh, to learn, you know, and so that you could have a bright future. And, you know, uni and things like that were never anything that sort of interested me. Um, so I sort of left school feeling pretty lost and not really knowing what to do next and fished around in a few different jobs until um, I sort of landed where I am now. But I suppose my childhood, I was, I loved, as I said, I loved sport. I loved spending time with my friends. Um, I just, you know, one friend would come over and we'd hang out and play during the day and then they'd leave and I'd beg my mum to let another friend come over. I just always wanted to be around people and I'm still sort of similar to that these days. I like doing things with people and, and getting out of the house and being social. But I think that was sort of stemmed from when I was a young age. So, um, yeah, that was me. Nothing. My mum and dad um, sort of split when I started high school and then that brought some challenges. Um, people know what it's like when your parents split up and sort of jump between houses. And I lived with my nan and pop for a bit. And um, I had a pretty regular childhood. Um, lots of, it's pretty common these days, sadly, with your parents splitting up and uh yeah there's nothing too exciting about my my childhood growing up and i think that life for me certainly became more impactful and 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 allowed me to have purpose and passion about life sadly after you know what happened to me and um and that really devastating loss i had in 2013. you spoke about how you always wanted to be around people and your friends um when your parents split up what role do they sort of play on your life with, i guess helping you get through everything my mum and dad, and, and they wouldn't mind me saying this, they, I mean, they were, I remember being a young kid and they were happy for a long, long time. And then um, it was quite evident that they, um, you know, looking back when I was young, I didn't know anything about relationships and stuff then, but it was evident for a long time that they'd grown apart. And I think I sort of, when they split up, I felt a real sense of relief, to be honest. So I remember I was, I used to play softball and I was over at softball park and um, my dad came up to me and said, you know, said something along the lines of, sorry, mate, I'm, I'm moving out. And I, I remember not feeling a sense of sadness, but almost a sense of relief that finally um, it was it was over and that hopefully they could get on with their own lives and, and life was going to be different. But I really accepted that and, and look forward to the future being different. I had my, my little brother and, and my younger sister. I'm the oldest, eldest of three. And, yeah, I, I lived with mum and then I lived with dad. And I, I think I, I did my best to support my, my little brother and my sister through it. Um, but a big part of my story, mate, is that I was very, you know, I was very Mitch orientated back then. I um, everything was sort of about me, and, and I know back then, although I was had a great relationship with my brother and my sister, I know that I was very much all about me. And if I had enough money in my bank, and 
Um, if I had enough friends to hang out with. As I said, through that period of high school, I lived with my nan and pop, who I, I miss dearly these days. Um, and, yeah, it was uh, definitely very challenging. There's, you, um, you'll always have challenges, I think, when your parents grow up. Even now, being an adult myself with my own child, um, there's still challenges that you face not having your parents together, and that's just part of life and just another challenge that we all face. I mean, my mum and dad weren't having, you know, like crazy arguments and it wasn't an unsafe space to be or anything for us kids, but you could definitely tell that, um, you know, with the with the bickering, and as I said, I was only, you know, 13 years of age, but you could tell the writing was on the wall and that um, their relationship was, was coming to an end. So as I said, even being 13 years of age, I mean, some kids might still say that they'd be, you know, really devastated, but I think we'd been through so much, you know, tumultuous moments as a family that for me, I just remember that moment thinking, right, thank thank the Lord. And now hopefully we can, um, you know, I just want my mum and dad to be happy and maybe together that's not where their genuine happiness is. So hopefully they do part ways and, and create better lives for themselves, which they've been able to do. So upon reflection, it was a really good decision that they made. And um, relationships um, need to be as healthy as possible. And I think learning and, and accepting when one might not go the way you want it to go um, I think that's a really important thing to be conscious of. You touched on, Elliot, how you were very Mitch-orientated. When your parents split up, do you sort of, I think I, that sort of affected or maybe helped your relationship with your siblings? I think so. Yeah, I was the eldest and uh, I think naturally you probably go into protective mode and um, my relationship with my sister was she sort of stayed with mum, I went with dad and then my little brother always floated in between um, for a long time there. He was probably with mum a little bit more. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely think with um, my little brother, I tried to protect him as much from that. I mean, he would have been about four or five years of age when they split up. And, you know, as I said earlier, tumult can be a tumultuous, tumultuous time for, um, for young kids growing up. And I tried to, you know, drag him away from any arguments and things that were ever happening for him to be able to witness them. But... Um, I, I think I did my best, but um, you certainly know a lot more when you get older and I certainly wish if I could go back in time, I'd yeah, probably um, be a better leader for them. I did as much as I could, but, yeah, I think I, I think I did a pretty good job. But it's certainly a, when you're 12, 13 years of age and your parents are splitting up, there's certainly challenges and you're still working out who you are as a person yourself. So you're never going to get it right. You can just do the best thing that you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll skip forward a little bit. So obviously... We spoke about your siblings and your family life. So on on Monday, the 14th of Jan, 2013, obviously a tragic um, moment happened for not only yourself, but your whole family. I've been reading your book and the one quote, or there's been a few quotes that sort of got me a little bit. And the one quote is, um, that night my family had officially been welcomed to the dark, terrifying, brutal world of suicide. Can you just sort of touch on that? And obviously it also led into, I guess, your work at the moment with Speak Up Stage Chatting, which we've, you've been doing for a while now. Can you just sort of touch back on that day and sort of everything, I guess, you remember? Yeah. Um, um, so it was the 14th of January uh, 2013. Uh, I'd just um, finished my first day back uh, at work for the year. Um, I was a qualified glazier and I worked with a, a small business out in Brighton uh, down here in Hobart. Um, it was just a normal evening Um my girlfriend was there. Uh, we'd, um, you know, I'd been home for a couple of hours. It was a hot Hobart afternoon, and um, all of a sudden, um, my phone started ringing. And it was my mum uh, calling me. And um, you know, me being me back then, I just sort of thought, you know, my mum rings me a few times a day. I'm sure she was just ringing to see how work was. Um, I didn't answer the call, and um, I threw the phone on the bed and said to my girlfriend, "Remind me to, to give mum a call back later." Um, but it was about 10 seconds after that when we heard um, my dad, who was upstairs, uh, let out a really loud scream. Um, was closely followed by some some screams from my stepmom. And, um, you know, in that next 10 seconds, it, it was just pretty much pandemonium. I remember my partner and I looking at each other, thinking something really bad's going on upstairs or, or something bad's happened in our life. But um, in that moment, we were ultimately... Um, pretty much too afraid to, to sort of move and find out what was happening. But um, I ended up running out of my room, started going up the stairs and uh, I got halfway and and then I looked up and, um, yeah, I'll never forget my old man. He came flying out of the kitchen and um, he uh, he was screaming and he was yelling at us and he was quick to tell us that um, my little brother Ty, um, who lived, you know, 60, 70% of the time with my mum up the road in Howrah, um, had suicided and, and had taken his own life and, um, I just remember um, dad took off um, with my stepmom. 
uh, I ran back downstairs to my my partner's room, uh, to my room with my partner. We just sort of, we didn't take off straight away. I just remember we were just sort of staring at each other and I think I was just like sort of yelling and screaming, thinking or saying out loud, you know, like, can't, can't be right. I just remember saying this must be a joke or this must be a misunderstanding. And it was probably after about five minutes, we, we grabbed the keys and, and tore off up the road and um, got to mum's place in, you know, probably six or seven minutes and, um, I think the the realization that this this whole nightmare was was actually happening was when we got to the bottom of the street. There were um, police and ambulance vehicles um, parked in at Mum's at the end of the cul-de-sac, and um, yeah, it was um, pretty traumatic experience. Sort of getting out of the car, and, and um, my partner waded down the bottom, and I just sort of ran up to the house, and um, yeah, just sort of didn't go in. Um, could see my mum. Um, overwhelmed with emotion out the front and a couple of people around her neighbors were there with her and um yeah it was just a pretty ordinary time and the the next sort of 20 minutes is probably a bit of a blur until um my old man came out and sort of walked down the stairs and and told me that he'd passed away and um yeah as um you quoted a minute ago mate in the book it sort of that was the moment that um it had all become reality and it had um yeah it had entered us into the really dark world of suicide which is one that we knew very little about but um yeah we were now in the midst of that and in the midst of um yeah a real shit fight of, of emotion of sadness of, of all the feelings that we never ever thought we'd felt they were sort of landed on our doorstep and we were just doing our best to try and navigate the next five seconds of our life at a time you just touched on i guess the emotion that sort of followed through followed on when you got told that your brother had passed when you ran upstairs to um i guess sort of confront what what had, had happened and why you sort of i guess your your dad was screaming and your stepmom was screaming when your dad told you what was like the first bit of what was sort of growing through your mind obviously it's one of those things that you sort of i guess you don't want to believe that's just happened you sort of start questioning everything can you just sort of touch on what was going through your mind when you got told yeah it's um i mean it was eight years ago and um you know i talk about it a lot um that i suppose that time is it's really hard for me because I I talk about that moment a lot in my life um, but there's also a part of me that wishes I could just sort of put it away and and never have to relive it and think about it Um, I think for me you know a big part of my story is Ty was the last person in our in our world that we ever imagined was struggling I mean if anyone had walked up to me at that time in my life and said someone in your life has has suicided he'd honestly be the last person on my radar that I would think that it's happened to so I think when dad said that I I think the first thing I felt was um you know dad was a dad's a big burly bloke with a you know shaved head and goatee that never really showed much emotion in his life and so I think the first thing I thought was wow this is this is big dad's you know overwhelmed with emotion and he's in a state that I've never seen him before um but then it was just pure shock to think you know how on earth could this be tired he was you know, 18, um, we just had a night out with, you know, his family, with our family and his mates, and he's about to start a building apprenticeship the next day. You know, this this can't be the case. And as I said, I think the next 15 minutes until I sort of got that image of my mum's, the front of mum's house with the paramedics and police there, it was sort of, you just, you know, I'd never been in anything like that before, but I think all I could think was we're going to get there and we're going to realise this is just all a big misunderstanding, but... Um, certainly the realisation to, to see that um, it was, you know, the realisation that this was real and that this is something that we're facing. Um, yeah, it was simply, yeah, simply devastating. And, um, you know, you never, you never ever really process it all. Like I've, you know, thought about it a million times that night and how I felt and what we could have done differently, etc. And I'll never, ever get over it. I've just sort of found ways in which I deal with it and um, can just, you know, I could let myself get overwhelmed with emotion most days of my life thinking about how tough that was and how awful that 24 48 hours was in our life but i just choose to find ways to to have some strength to just not think about it as best i can unless i have to when i'm presenting or you know doing a podcast like i am with you today so um yeah definitely um an experience that scarred me as well you know i i these days you know if my wife or or someone i'm around sort of yells or shouts, um, you know, come here. You know, it, it, it really frightens me, and you know, it's really scarred me. You know, I straight away assume the worst and think that something bad's happened. So, I suppose that's something that's, um, yeah, sort of with me forever out of that moment. Yeah, no, it's completely understandable. 
Um, you touched on in your book behind the smile, a story of um, life and a life story of life after loss. Sorry, um, on the letter your brother sort of left. When you read that letter, like I even, even when I was reading the book and saw the letter that read the letter that he had read, like I was in tears. But can you sort of touch on that moment and knowing, I guess, your brother that that was how your brother was feeling, like? Yeah. that he wasn't able to like sort of express it to you guys can you yeah, sort of yeah. touch on that a little bit yeah so i think um things like that for me i i, I remember with that letter I, did, I didn't hear about that for probably four or five days until afterwards and um yeah i don't it didn't say much i mean it's been so long i sort of forget i'm pretty sure it was something like you know i'm sorry i love you guys um and i think that's you know that's how um devastating this whole thing called suicide is i think that you know anyone that's battling and, and struggling doesn't want to feel that way i'm you know i'm confident of that that they they don't want to feel the pain that they're feeling and unfortunately for some people that they just feel that taking their life is their only option and i, and I think that was the the situation with ty i know that he knew that you know his family and his friends all love him very much and we'd be totally devastated by this happening uh, but that pain that he felt and the the unsure, you know, unsurety in his life about the emotions and the feelings that he was going through, um, I suppose, made him feel like that was his only option. So I think that's a, a big part of our work that um, we want less and less people to get to that stage as possible, obviously. Um, and that's why, you know, staying connected and important and, and conversations every single day with friends and family and people within your community are really, really important. Um, I just, I couldn't, I can't... Um, pump up the importance of, of staying connected any more than I can today. You know, like it's just so important to find people in your life to, to have conversations with about how you're feeling and the things happening in your life, because um, that's essentially getting help. And that's, you know, that's keeping you on the, on the right path to not get to that stage that my little brother did. So um, yeah, that, as I said, that, that letter was, you know, just another level or another layer of, of devastation for us to know that um, he, he was sorry, um, you know, he had no reason at all to be sorry towards us. You know, he was um, he was struggling and we just wished to God that he reached out and asked us for support. But um, I think the other layer of sadness for that is that we wish we noticed back then that he was struggling and um, that we could have put our arm around him and, and, you know, assured him that whatever he was going through um, could, he, could be dealt with a lot easier by just getting some support from his family and friends who care about him a lot. So... Um, yeah, as I said, there's many, many layers to, to suicide of devastation and things pop up and you think about it all the time. Um, that's why the best thing we can do is just do our best to prevent it and, and have less of these stories and less people like us um, walking around, you know, with that rainy cloud of sadness over us every single day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also don't know how, I guess, you were eight years ago before the passing of your brother, like what type of person you were. But um, there's obviously this persona that... Um, men don't share their emotions men don't really talk about what what they're going through or how they're feeling weeks after your brother had passed away you you spoke about in your book how i guess you were in your room a fair bit and you sort of took on that role of i guess making sure everyone was all right making sure things kept on going flying obviously your, your parents weren't really stable enough to be able to like funeral and all that sort of stuff um when everyone had gone to bed and it was just you with your thoughts and everything you were going through. What some of the, how did you sort of, how did you sort of cope? Like what things did you do to help you cope? Obviously you and your girlfriend, like you, that you obviously couldn't be with each other as often or as much as you wanted to because of the culture differences, which we'll obviously touch on a little bit later, but what sort of, um, how, what ways did you cope? Like how did you cope with everything that was going on? Yeah. So um, there were many options for me. I mean, the one thing that people, um, was saying to me was, did I want to go and see a, a counsellor, a grief counsellor, etc. And um, I think after probably about five, six weeks, I remember my mum, through her employer, um, offered her counselling, which she took up, which was great. Um, and then they offered it to any of um, my mum's family. And so I went along once um, and sat down and had a conversation with a counsellor about how I was feeling. But for me, um, the best way I found to navigate through that that grief roller coaster that we were going through was just to be around, yeah, the people that knew my little brother and that cared about him and cared about me, such as you know my girlfriend and my mates and um, my family and um, my brother's friends. I just rallied around those people as much as I could, um, just sharing stories and talking about it. And 
um, you know, you go to a counsellor and, you know, I think counsellors do a wonderful, wonderful job and they're a wonderful um, resource for people to go on and seek when they're going through a difficult time. But for me in that stage, I just needed to, to cry and, and hug um, the people that cared about me and that, that I cared about as well. And that was a really um, great way for me to navigate myself through it. Um, yeah, it's, you have many dark thoughts when, when that happens and it's almost like you find yourself, I found myself over the next few weeks sort of, you know, I went back to work after probably two weeks um, and you start doing things and, you know, I, I was a glazer, I'm putting window in or I'd be um, footy training and you sort of forget about what's going on for a moment, which I, I think is healthy, but then when you stop and um, the reality sets in and you start thinking about it, it can take you back and, yeah, you have many emotional days and, and many really difficult times. Um, as you touched on, yeah, I, I was, um, I'm not saying I was the beacon of support for our family, but I, I suppose I, I tried to step up as much as I could and, and be there for, um, you know, my sister and my mum and my dad and um, the people around us as best I could. Um, but what I, what I also started to do was, you know, become really obsessed with um, wanting answers as to why it had happened. So I was experiencing a really high level of grief, but I was also becoming really, um, really interested in mental health and depression and, you know, wanting to learn more about it and, and wanting to understand why this, um, this issue took my little brother away. I wanted answers. I wanted to know why the hell did I grow up in a world where I, you know, why didn't anyone tell me that it was okay to learn about mental health? He could still be here if I learned more about it. Um, so I started having conversations with people and, and sort of reading about it and learning as much as I could. But um, there's no denying that, um, you know, that next two weeks um, is probably the, the most lonely I've ever felt in my life where, you know, people are devastated for you, but they simply just go back to their normal lives and their work and the pain isn't as severe for them like it is for you when it's an immediate family member. So, yeah, it's a really lonely, difficult um, road that you, you go through. And, um, yeah, I'm so glad that that's in the past. But as I said a moment ago, it's sort of, I'm, I'm really scarred by that and I, I really fear loss and I, I really fear um, something happening to, to those that are really close to me at the fear of not only losing them, but feeling that pain and that sadness again in my life is something I never, ever want to experience. I don't really know how to word this question, but um, I guess if you sort of had one last moment with Ty, what sort of, what, what sort of one thing you'd sort of, I guess you would say to him? Yeah, I, I always talk about the last interaction I ever had with him and that was the night before he passed away and I and I went into his bedroom to, to say goodnight and he was laying there playing on his phone like like we all do. Um, but he didn't answer me the first time and I, I just remember sort of walking in a little bit more, kicking the door and sort of shouting at him like, hey, come on, I said goodnight, you know, say goodnight back to me. And um, he looked at me, he just sort of mumbled the word goodnight and I just pulled his door shut and I went to bed and, um, I, you know, never saw him ever again in my life alive. And um, I always think about that moment. And, you know, we always have what ifs and if we could do things differently, et cetera. And um, I never forget, you know, he looked he looked not okay that night. Um, he was pale faced. He, I, I can almost go as far as saying that he sort of had tears in his eyes. He was laying there as a young 18-year-old with the world ahead of him, but also with the world on his shoulders. And um, I, you know grew up ignorant, you know, as much as I was there for my little brother and as much as I loved him and the rest of my family, the idea of checking in on someone if they didn't look okay was absolutely not at the top of my to-do list. And I just assumed that he was probably, you know, dreading that it was Monday tomorrow and pulled his door shut and went to bed. But, you know, what I know about mental health now is that um, I'd never, ever miss an opportunity like that again in my life. And if I had that opportunity again, I'd... Um, I'd sit with him, I'd, I'd wrap my arm around him, I'd, I'd tell him that whatever you're dealing with, I'm, I'm here 24-7 to help you with it. Um, I can guide you, I can help you get support. Um, no problem is too big for us to get through it together. So I certainly, yeah, I'd, I'd give anything to have that moment again. Um, I certainly know that I can't, but I suppose I hope that talking about it and, and encouraging other people to look out for the small changes in, in those around them to, to act on them. Um, is really, really important and powerful for, for people to know that we can keep each other here tomorrow. So, um, yeah, can't, can't have that opportunity, unfortunately, but hopefully spreading the message that we do through Stay Chatty and, and sharing my story reminds people every day to, to never pass up the opportunity to ask someone, are you okay, when you can see that they're clearly not and they've they're clearly got some things going on in their mind. I absolutely love that. And before, I guess, we sort of move on to your work, obviously now with Speak Up Stay Chatty, 
was there like a moment or a day or something that just happened that you sort of, I guess, flicked the switch from going and sort of accepting that your brother had passed away to now going, how can I keep his legacy going? How can I keep everyone remembering what such an amazing person he was, like a, a brother, a son, a friend? How Was there like a moment that you thought, okay, this is how I can keep my brother's amazing memory going? Yeah, I think to, to sort of preface that, I think, um, I mean, I don't think we'll ever, for me, I can never accept that it happened. I mean, I, I've accepted that it happened. Um, it's really um, a real, yeah, ex- I don't know whether, I'm not saying that accepting is the right or wrong word, but for me, it'll always just be, I, I think I still always live with a real disbelief that it happened. Like I just still, even though I live and breathe this stuff and I talk about it every day and I have, an enormous amount of days filled with sadness. It's just really difficult to, to comprehend that it actually happened and we actually went through it. But I think um, I was at work one day and, as I said, I'd been trying to be the support for my family. Uh, we were all supporting each other, but I sort of was just took it upon myself to do as much as I can, um, living and breathing that really awful roller coaster, as I said. Uh, I'd had a recent interaction with my mum where um, she was really down and... Um, you know, really overwhelmed with emotion, you know, acting out, um, really angry at the world. I think her her emotions went from sort of disbelief and sadness to sort of anger um, that it happened. And I think seeing my mum's anger, um, you know, really resonated me to just want others to not experience that. You know, no mum should ever go through what my mum went through um, in losing a child to suicide. And I think the mix between feeling sad for her but also wanting us to try and just be happy again um, you know, made me realise that I want to do something about it. So, yeah, I, I can't remember the exact date. I think it was probably about three months after losing Ty when I, um, yeah, just sat down with the pad and pen, starting to sketch a bit of an idea for a car sticker um, just to pay tribute to him, to give him a, give us a lift, um, but also on the back of giving us a lift and, and trying to help us through that difficult time was to also maybe start raising awareness so that, you know, others simply don't have to feel and, and live with what we're living with. So that's where Speak Up Stay Chatty came from, that, that logo that night. Um, and then the next couple of weeks in working with a, a printing place and a, and a graphic designer, um, you know, shifted my, you know, living in that that um, bubble of grief to actually being able to focus on something else and transitioning that from a really bad negative time to something really exciting to wake up and focus on and, and seeing a really bright future at the fact that we can maybe make a real difference with this logo and, and, and help potentially save other, save other people and save other families from going through what we were going through. So it was, yeah, probably a two, two or three week process until the sticker actually landed on the front door. But um, yeah, I often say that um, that idea that I had and the support from the people around me to do that um, certainly changed my life and, and gave me a real passion in life and, and a real purpose. Purpose was something that I I never really felt that I had. And, and now every day when I wake up, I do feel purpose-driven and um, and feel like I'm making a positive difference, which is, you know, one of the greatest feelings I think as a human being we can ever have. I don't know if you know this or not, but I was talking to um, James Rice a few months ago when he saw that you, you came on the podcast and I was telling him how sort of, when I started the podcast, you were probably one of the first person people I wanted to get on. And I was a bit shy or a bit nervous sort of sending you that message. That's sort of why I just sort of, I guess, just sort of held on to it for a bit. Like I had the message all ready to go and everything, but just sort of held on to it a little bit until I guess I built a bit of, built a bit of a, what's the word? Just be yeah, a bit, built the podcast up a little bit. So no, yeah. I'm obviously very glad that you are, you are coming on or you did come on uh, and had a chat to me. I appreciate that. I appreciate that and um, I'm always willing, you know, I mean, there's certainly some days where I, I don't feel like talking about it, but I understand the importance of doing it. And I always say that I like to think that, you know, having a little bit of courage to, to talk about a really shitty time in my life and the devastation that it caused us, I hope that anyone, you know, listening to that can um, take some learnings away from it and put their radar out there for those that they love and care about. So, yeah, the opportunity to speak with you, hopefully spreading through your channels and um, and hopefully helping someone. So no, I'm, I'm pumped yeah. to be on here with you, mate. Yeah, absolutely love it. Um, so we'll move on to a speak up stage chatting now. But before I guess we do that, I sort of want to ask you this. Um, what two-part question, what did you sort of know or what was your knowledge of, I guess, suicide and depression, anxiety, and I guess speaking out 
well before, say, when you were 18? What was, I guess, your knowledge of it? Like, you obviously hear people talk about, like, it's okay to be okay and talk about your feelings and all that sort of stuff, but no one ever really pushes it. It's just sort of, I guess, a saying that you sort of hear when you're in high school and college and all that sort of stuff. But I guess what was your knowledge of all those things then compared to, I guess, now when you've started an organisation that's pushing this message, it's okay not to be okay and just speak up and stay chatty and just to, I guess, yeah, express how you're really feeling. Could you, I guess, now find that at stages in your life you were depressed, you were sad and you were sort of struggling? Yeah, so I think for me when I was 18, there actually wasn't a lot at all around um, mental health. Um, I honestly have thought about this a lot and I think back to, you know, my college days and, you know, signing up as a, a trainee and sign writing and then moving into apprenticeships and working at Woolies. And I just don't ever think that, you know, from my employer or my colleagues or my, my classmates or my friends, mental health was really ever something that we, we spoke about at all. I, I remember two significant um, situations around suicide in my life. I think one when I was about, I think I was about 10 and I was playing footy and there was a, a teammate who, um, who lost his mum. Um, and I just remember we were told about it. I heard my parents discussing it later on without me trying to hear about it. Um, other than that, never, ever spoken about again. Um, and then there was one when I think I was about 15, um, a guy that um, um, I considered a friend and used to ride the bike with um, when I was a lot younger, when I was about 16 or 18, I heard that um, he'd taken his life. But again, it was you heard about it and then it sort of went away and it wasn't really ever spoken about again so for me suicide and, and I think within my group it was something that was never ever really spoken about um at all um you know even days like are you okay day and stuff now you know they've been around for a long time but in my circle and, and in my my work and my friends work and the people I've had conversations with have all said that it was something they never embraced or really ever focused on um so I think that for me you know when losing time and transitioning from being a support for people, raising awareness and, and just becoming really obsessed with the fact that I didn't know anything about this, but what becoming obsessed with it, you know, I'd never, you know, I didn't go to uni or anything like that, mate. I was pretty, wasn't great at studying or reading books and doing my homework and stuff. But for some reason, this, well, for obvious reasons, this really resonated with me and I wanted to learn as much about it as I possibly could. So I think that the opportunities there to have conversations with people, um, learning that, um, you know, maybe my little brother was struggling, you know, for, for the first few weeks and months, we probably said he was fine and we, we didn't really see that he was struggling. But the reality there was that we just didn't know what the signs of mental health was and that, um, or the signs of what negative mental health was. You know, he was down and out. He was a bit flat. He was off his game a little bit. But again, we just didn't know that it was okay to check in and check in that everything was all right. So, yeah, um, I like to think that um, we've sort of pioneered that a little bit here through Stay Chatty, through the, you know, not just me, but the amazing people that have, you know, believed in me and, and been on this journey with me and the people that work with us now, like Ricey, who you, who you mentioned a moment ago. Um, we really believe in the message. We believe in the change we can make by spreading it. And, um, yeah, as I said, it's we've certainly as a state come a long way with the awareness. Um, now it's just about, you know, making sure we maintain that really high level of the awareness, but also um, ensuring that there's help out there for people and, and how we can get into those services and um, people can access them in a timely manner and, and be able to get the support they need should they be going through a difficult time. You just touched on a little bit there that you, that you didn't go to uni and you weren't, I guess you didn't really do your homework or any of that sort of stuff, which I'm sure you're not the only person. Um, do you think the passing of your brother sort of gave you a purpose? Like you mentioned in your book how you're sort of stuck on what you wanted to do and you weren't really too keen on glazing, but you sort of had an idea of making your own business and all that sort of stuff. Had a pretty odd slogan, but we won't go into that. <laughs> um, yeah, do you sort of feel as if the passing of your brother gave you a purpose and something worth doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... Um, yeah, I mean, I love the people that I glaze with. I still have a really great relationship with my, my former um, employer and his wife and a couple of guys that work there. Um, funny enough, my, my little brother-in-law actually works for that glazing business now as an apprentice, so that's really cool and um, I like that connection there. But, um, you know, putting windows in and, 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 and shower screens and stuff was something I sort of just took on because I was, you know, not knowing what it was I wanted to do and, 
um, took a glazing apprenticeship and got it. But I, I, I wouldn't wake up every day and think, oh, I love what I do. Or, you know, I, I joked around in the book about saying I'd start my own business. And, but the reality was I'd, I'd never had the drive or the, the passion to ever do that. And so I think um, I feel as unlucky as I feel to have been touched by suicide. And the flip side of that is that I feel really lucky to have um, had this idea and then had many people believe in me to bring it to life, to be what it is today, because um, I love going to bed every night knowing that I get to wake up and, and do this for a job every day. I, I travel, I, I meet new people, I have conversations with you know people in high places. And um, I think that's just something that I'm really, really grateful for and something that, you know, I worked my ass off to get to this, but I feel, um, yeah, really purposeful every single day that we get to positively contribute to communities, you know, workplaces, individuals every single day with the work that we do. Um, it's funny, growing up, I used to love the idea of, of working on radio or standing up, you know, I did a bit of drama in high school. I used to love the idea of um, working on radio or standing up in front of people speaking. And um, it's funny now that, I, I wish that I'd follow that in a different way, you know, to get there. I, I truly believe that if you're out there and you have things that you enjoy chasing, you know, I love radio, I love standing up and talking in front of people, but I was never going to get out of my comfort zone and do it. Um, through tragedy, I've now done that. But, you know, I'm a prime example of someone being um, uncomfortable in life, you know, I'm sorry, comfortable in life and not willing to get uncomfortable um, Brendan Bolton, who coached me at Clarence for a year, that was his favourite saying, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, how true, you know, if you're sitting there and you, you have passion, you're passionate about something, you want to do something for a living that's going to bring you purpose and, and satisfaction, um, get off your ass and go and do it because you can achieve it and um, it'll bring you great satisfaction in life. And I get that every single day. Um, you know, I always say that um, I wish to God I never ever had to create Stay Chatty, but I'm, I'm sure glad I did out of that tragedy and, um, as I said, it's given me that purpose and it's um, certainly helping a lot of people along the way, which is a, you know, a really positive feeling. You touched on a little bit, when we were touched, talking about the um, passing of your brother, how you talk about obviously the passing of your brother every day when you're doing your presentations and you're doing other work with Speak Up, Say Chatty. I guess from a, what I'm trying to ask is from a um, tragic accident, tragic situation to, I guess, making a simple a uh, um, sticker trying to spread a message to raise some money for another organisation to working with Relations for Australia, creating a, this organisation that's all around Australia now and just spreading a message that it's just speak up, stay chatty um, to, I guess, the work you've been doing recently. Can you sort of touch on some of the challenges you've had to face while creating Speak Up, Stay Chatty and some of the like lessons you've learned? Yeah, it's certainly, um, I, it's probably one of the most asked questions I get. You know, people will email me and they're having the courage as well to go and start a, a charity or something that they are really passionate about and they want some tips from me on, on how they got started. And I'm always um, absolutely open to having conversations with people about that because, as I said a moment ago, I think if you believe that you can make a difference in something and you feel you've got some skill sets, uh, a skill set to achieve that, then, you know, grab it with both hands and have, a crack at it and I'll certainly assist people wherever I can. I'm not an expert and um, absolutely not the, the best example of it, but I always like to help people achieve what they want to do. It certainly wasn't easy. I mean, I think for me, mental health in Tasmania was um, something that, you know, was definitely spoken about, but not at the level that it needed to be. Um, fortunate enough to, you know, have some strong connections through my footy and my, my cricket and my school and my workplace and my mates. And um, I think just the fact that um, Ty's passing, he was a well-known guy. You know, there were lots of people that were really touched by that. And I think the fact that a, a positive came out of that was something that many people just wanted to embrace. There was just so much sadness around the loss of Ty, but I'm sure those that heard about the loss of Ty that had been touched by suicide as well, it opens up some old scars. And we were just sort of yearning as a state, I feel, for a, you know, a real positive around mental health because it was just such a, a taboo topic that not many people wanted to talk about. And those that had been touched by it probably didn't feel very comfortable to come out and speak about it. That's feedback that I've got from, from other bereaved family members over the years. So I, I suppose the easy thing, you know, the Facebook page set up, you know, getting a few thousand likes straight away and people buying stickers and rallying around it and doing interviews and stuff. I sort of early days thought, how good is this? You know, there's so much hype about it. We're going to take over the world, but um, it's a big place and, and not everyone wants it. I did a talk pretty early on and 
Um, I remember hearing a lady discussing my presentation before I'd done it um, in the next room. I sort of walked past me on the phone and said, um, called me an idiot and didn't know I was there, but said, oh, we've got some idiot here to talk about suicide. You know, I can't wait to get out of here. So I soon crashed back to earth, you know, hearing that, thinking, you know, not everyone wants to talk about mental health. Not everyone thinks it's the greatest idea ever. And for me, I think it was that was a probably good good learning lesson to not get carried away in thinking that just everyone's going to jump on board your message and, and everyone's going to support you. There's going to be challenges. I'm sort of glad that that moment happened. It was a good realisation for me to think that you're going to have, to remember that you're going to have knockbacks and you're going to have people not always want to want to support what you're doing. Um, but what I did, mate, I, I just, I networked as hard as I could. I, I rallied around people that believe, you know, lots of people reached out offering the support and I took that up. Um, I, I'm always really big on as a leader or someone trying to pioneer change for something that you don't just listen to your own ideas and, and remain really headstrong on the own way you want to do it. Um, I think absorb and soak up feedback and, and opinions from other people is really, really important. And, and I certainly did that. Um, and as I said, just um, a lot of it is a blur, but just lots of hard work, lots of conversations, lots of networking with people in important places and, um, and a real belief in the fact that um, I'm going to make a difference um, and staying strong, even though that you do get knocked back. Um, as I said, you know, that lady saying what she did and a few other comments along the way, um, didn't stop me from doing it because deep down I knew that it needed to happen and we needed to bring mental health into the fore and have some really important conversations about it. So, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, been a been a hell of a ride the last eight years. I feel that we've, we've come a long way, but um, in the mental health space, you can never get complacent and you've always got to really try and remain um, in the forefront of people's minds and eyes and ears. And, and I feel that we're doing a really good job of that. Um, but, yeah, as I said, Tassie's got a long way to go with mental health and, and we certainly hope to continue playing a really important part of that for, for many, many years to come. Um, this is my, honestly, my favourite quote um, from the book. Like it's an, it's an obviously an amazing book and I've told you how much I've, I've loved reading it. Yeah, when I was reading it, this quote really stood out to me. I've sort of paraphrased it a little bit, but um, it goes, when it comes to mental health and suicide, we need to confront it directly. We, we are all given a chance. We're all given the chance. Suicide prevention is truly everyone's business. I guess the question I'm trying to ask from this is where, where else can we go? What's the next step? And I guess continuing to spread the message that suicide is everyone's business and continue to spread the message. It's honestly okay. Not to be okay. Like, is it just having a simple conversation with your friends and your family? Like, can you sort of touch on that quote and sort of what you were sort of meaning when you, when you wrote that? Yeah, I think we've just got to make it every part of our day. I finished my um, presentation with, you know, I always share my story, talk about state shadow, talk about mental health and signs and symptoms around depression, anxiety. But what I always am really big on leaving um, my audience with is tools to put in our back pocket to deal with or to better our mental health for those or for us or those around us every single day. Um, I think we've just got to try and, you know, raise our kids to be yeah the word resilient gets thrown around a lot um, but raise our kids to know that mental health is something that we can talk about we can talk about openly but then knowing you know knowing how to do that or how to stay connected or how to support each other through that so things such as you know listening listening can save a life conversations matter get help when you need it um, be kind to each other and then the last one's always it's okay to not be okay um, but you know the thing you've spoken about mate like my life now, I'm not an expert at it, but I'm always walking around and when I'm with my colleagues or when I'm with my friends, my wife or my family, I'm always just thinking, are they okay? And I think that's just a really important thing that I've got in my back pocket that I'm just always on the lookout for anyone that just looks 1% off their game. And if they are off, they're likely to get a text or a call from me to check in and see how they're travelling. Um, and that person might be fine and my judgement might be slightly off, but after that conversation or them being asked by me or that text received by me, um, you know, that's that can play on, that effect can play on, you know, for them to know that I cared about them, I took the time to check in, makes them realise that it was quite a simple thing that I did. Um, maybe that's something that they can do as part of their life and, and, and so on. That's just how we have to keep spreading it. But I think, I think whatever we can do, um, anything that we can do around mental health, I think the best thing that we can do is just putting our radar out every single day and checking in on each other and those that we care about is is absolutely has to be the number one um, because that breaks down barriers. Um, it makes people realise that if they are having an off time, that there's 
people around them that care about them and that they can have that conversation. So um, we don't have to be experts in it, um, but just learn a little bit about it and know that sitting down with someone and, and showing you care and having that that really open conversation is um, you know imperative to the way that we all view mental health can, and can make a, a bloody massive difference every single day um, for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I absolutely love that, Mitch. So uh, this is a question I've sort of been asking um, some of the guests throughout the last season of the podcast. So yeah, we're just sort of chatting about um, vulnerability and sort of how you would define vulnerability and sort of, I guess, what makes you feel vulnerable the most? What makes me feel vulnerable? Um, yeah, I think, as I said a moment ago, you know, getting comfortable, uh, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, I think in this line of work for me, um, people might think that, you know, as I said, I, I feel purposeful and I love my job and I feel like I have an amazing opportunity every day to do what I do, but um, I'm still always very uncomfortable doing what I'm doing. Like I, um, I'm always making myself vulnerable by, you know, being a team leader. You know, I feel sometimes uncomfortable that I'm a, I'm a team leader and having conversations with guys about how they do their job. And, you know, I'm vulnerable every time I stand up in front of an audience to speak. Um, as I said, I'm always scarred by, you know, comments that um, this isn't for everyone. And that's absolutely true. So I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and it's something that I actually haven't really thought too much about. Um, but I think that just when you put yourself out there and you are trying to spread a really important message, I suppose you're making yourself um, vulnerable every single day. And um, But that does bring strength as well, though. You know, if I'm standing up in front of an audience that I'm worried is going to be a bit tricky or not as engaging as another audience, um, when I get through it and um, I had great feedback and people got a lot out of it, um, I suppose that strengthens me for next time. And, you know, as I said, that's making me a, a better and a stronger person for next time I'm feeling vulnerable or feeling like I'm not achieving or, or not contributing like um, like I want to. So, yeah, that's a, a really good question and um, something I hadn't really thought too much about. But, yeah, I suppose my whole job is, you know, media and things like that is making myself um, vulnerable. But, as I said, all for the better and all for the, the better good of others to make a positive difference. Yeah, and how, how would you sort of define it? How would you sort of define vulnerability? Um, well, I suppose defining vulnerability is, um, yeah, making putting yourself in positions that make you feel uncomfortable, I suppose. Um, as I said, for me, standing in front of an audience in front of 50 or 500 people um, is an incredibly vulnerable moment um, where people can say and do what they all pick you apart. But um, as I said, I'm all the better for, for putting myself through that. And I certainly you get anxious and anxiety sets in and you're sweaty and you're nervous about that. But um, it's a good life lesson to, as I said, get through it. And it gives you strength to, to move into it next time. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love that. Well, um, before we wrap up, can you sort of touch a little bit about on your book and sort of, I guess, what made you want to write a book? Obviously, you talk about that, talk about it in here. But, yeah, yep. can you just sort of touch on it a little bit? Yeah, it's, um, I can't even remember. I think it was 2018 um, the book um, came out. So nearly two, or 2019, I think. Um, it was not long after when I was um, named Tasmanian Young Australian of the Year, I got the opportunity to go to Canberra for the national event. And, um, you know, it was just an amazing experience um, to meet uh, the other young Australians in my group who I'm still connected with, um, people in all the other categories, you know, met the Governor General, the Prime Minister. It was an amazing trip. But one thing I um, realised my wife and I on that journey and that trip was many people had put what they were doing into a story um, and that you got really great reach by putting it into a book and allowing people to read it if you don't get the opportunity to present to them. So, um, yeah, I got back and teamed up with um, a ghostwriter and had many, many conversations. The book is probably one of the um, toughest yet rewarding things I've done in the last eight years. You know, I sat with um, a lady out of Launceston named Hillary who sort of helped me put it all together. And, um, you know, we had, I, I don't often talk about the deep things that happened, you know, on the night or the weeks after losing Ty, but I sat with this lady and, you know, we both cried for hours on end while I sort of relived those moments with her. She sort of noted them down and then put them together in my words. And um, I feel it was sort of a therapeutic process for me to sort of get out those I had to go real deep in the, the feelings that I was feeling and the emotions that I felt. And it was, yeah, sort of therapeutic to get them out of the system. Um, so from a, a personal perspective, that whole journey really helped, um, helped me on my way to healing. But 
the, the real reason for the book was to just go a little bit deeper than what I can in my presentation and to just have greater reach. You know, I, I do a prayers and then um, I stand there and people come up and buy my book because they want their daughter or their, their husband to, to, to have my story as well. And, um, and that for me is just another really important way. Anyone that reads the book is just learning more about mental health, the devastation of suicide, um, and ultimately just another opportunity for them to learn more about mental health so that they can, you know, create change for their life or, or someone around them. So it was simply, yeah, just a, another opportunity to raise awareness and, and get it out there. But as I said, personally, it was a really, um, a really great, um, challenging, but really great experience for me to, to go really deep and to get a lot of that out of my system. So, yeah, it's um, online. Um, Sales of the book certainly dry up now because there's certainly a lot of hype around it, but I certainly still sell a lot of them on my presentations, which I'm, again, really grateful. Yeah, no, it's a really good book. And yeah, like I've said numerous amounts of times, it's one of my one of my favourite books I've definitely read and I've been palming it off to my mates to read and just to, I guess, Excellent. yeah, just to hear the story. And yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great thing you're doing, Mitch. And this is probably a really great place to wrap up and I really, really am thankful that you sort of took the time out. <laughs> We've been working on this for a long time, but um, I'm thankful that you did take the time out to come on and have a chat to me. I really, really do appreciate it. No, mate, thank you very much for the opportunity. I think anyone listening to this today, um, you know, have a, I always say with our logo, you know, there's 60 odd thousand stickers out there now. Um, I want people to see our logo and do two things, you know, check in on yourself, how you're travelling, um, and then also put your radar out for those around you. And I think if you make, you know, embrace, stay chatty or whatever it is that want you want to let remind you about mental health, find a mental health reminder in your life. Um, and then if you're doing that every day, checking in on yourself, checking in on those around you, um, the world will become, you know, a much better place and a safer environment for everyone to have the conversation. So, um, yeah, for you having me on, mate, I really appreciate it. It was just another opportunity for your listeners to, to have a think about something that's really important in today's society. So um, thanks for the opportunity. And, you know, if anyone listening to this, mate, does need support, um, 13, 11, 14 for Lifeline or jump on our Stay Chatty website. Plenty of links to resources and services on there as well. So thanks for having me. All good, mate. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on. If this episode has triggered anything for you around mental health, don't remain unannounced. Visit www.staychatty.com.au slash get help for a list of services.